Welcome to Judaism Demystified, a podcast for the perplexed. We are joined once again by Professor Jeffrey Rubenstein. This is the third episode in a row featuring Professor Rubenstein because we are doing a series on Elisha Ben Abuya. This is the third and final installment. So we highly recommend you guys going back and listening to the previous two episodes if you haven't already. We've gotten tremendous feedback and we are really, really enjoying this. So without further ado, Professor Rubenstein. Thank you for joining the Judaism Demystified podcast. Uh, Dr. Rubenstein, we really appreciate you making the time to put in all these hours on, on this subject. Um, and before we finish this third and final installment about Elisha Ben Abuya, we wanted to ask you about yourself because people are listening for hours already and I'm sure they want to know about you a little bit. Like, how did you get into this? What what attracted you to stories of, of uh, the Agadah and so on? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. And first, thank you for having me and uh, thank you for the series and popularizing Torah in general in this way and my work. And it's a, it's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I actually got into Talmudic stories, rabbinic stories, totally by accident, purely serendipitously. I, I started out, my, my graduate work, my PhD work was with Professor David Weiss-Halivni, Zichronoli Vracha, he died recently. Um, and he was a great Talmudist. He was one of the uh, world's greatest living Talmudists at that time, but he was very interested in traditional Talmud, analysis of Sugiyot, uh, development of Jewish law. Um, I studied with him, but I actually wrote my PhD, my dissertation on more of a historical topic because I was interested in more sort of broader issues than just something kind of within the Talmud. So I wrote it on the history of Sukkot in the period of the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, which incorporated a great deal of Mishnah and Talmud, but also a kind of historical focus and many other sources. So that's what I was working on. And then I was also working on some just purely Talmudic issues with the development of what we would call legal science. That is the move toward abstraction that you find in Talmudic law, um, which itself is its own kind of very complicated area. So I, I was doing all that, but one source that I was analyzing in my study of Sukkot was a very interesting long Agadah, really a story at the beginning of Tractate Avadah Zarah of the Babylonian Talmud, which, which has to do with really what happens when the next world happens. And Akadish Borahu, it starts out, God comes and takes a Sefer Torah, and he says, Everybody who was busy with Sefer Torah with Torah come and receive their award. And the Romans come and the Persians come. Everybody wants to claim it. Anyway, it's a long, very, very interesting story, but at the end. Um, God gives the Romans, the, the Gentiles, really, a test of a mitzvah to see if they can observe the mitzvot now. And that mitzvah is the sukkah. They're supposed to observe the mitzvah of sukkah. So this was relevant to my dissertation. I was trying to figure out why the sukkah, why this one, why not another one? How does that tell us about the history of Sukkot? But meanwhile, I'm working on this text from Avadazara, and it's a beautifully constructed story. And I started noticing some of these literary aspects of it. Um, and I didn't really know what to do with this because 
the kind of literary story uh, study of rabbinic narratives of rabbinic stories was kind of on its infancy, but it was done by one professor, a great professor at Hebrew University, Yona Franco, who had started applying literary analysis to stories in a pretty sophisticated way. So I started reading a lot of Franco. I was reading also Jacob Neusner, a, a scholar who had also decided stories were not historical. They were what we would call fiction or literature. And at this point, I um, decided this was going to be my next project once I was done with Sukkot. If you've ever written a dissertation, you, you know, a lot of people who, who write dissertations after they're done with it or done with then publishing the book and maybe some articles, they never want to see that subject again. They're totally sick of it. They've had enough. <laughs> I've had enough. <clears throat> so I needed another thing to research and I, I sort of gravitated to these stories. And what was very interesting is that I thought no one had really analyzed these stories with the source critical methodology that my teacher, David Weisselidney, had developed. That method, you know, critical Talmud method, had been applied mainly to legal passages, not so much to narratives, to stories. And so my idea was to combine this kind of literary analysis that Jonah Frankel was doing with this kind of source critical or critical Talmud analysis that my teacher, David Weisselifni, was doing and see what would happen. And it, it seemed to pay off some good dividends as you know, as uh, I think I was able to show kind of a lot of how the stories work in the Bavli, where they come from, how the Bavli revised earlier sources as they do with legal passages, and yet how the stories are sophisticated legal, pro uh, sophisticated um, literary products, uh, literary creations with a theme and an, and an art in and of themselves. So that was how it all happened. Just totally by kind of chance. Fascinating. I, I just want to make a point. Um, a mm -hmm. lot of people, mm -hmm. sadly, and misunderstanding with, 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 with a misunderstanding as to what mm -hmm. um, analyzing um, Agadot via the, the literary unit as a, a literary unit versus mm -hmm. a historical reality, the tendency is to think that that lowers the reverence that one would have towards these Agadots where in fact, I look at it as completely the opposite. You gain reverence when you see the incredible detail and purpose, purposefulness in every word and every uh, choice that they make and how they develop th these stories. It, it brings you to understand that they had grand ideas in mind that they were trying to communicate via this method. Yeah, um, you're you're 100 right, and you know the the notion that these are kind of meant to be historical and just tell you about the lives and deeds of the sages actually takes away from them because that wasn't what the authors intended. They weren't they weren't interested so much in what Rebbe Giba did on this day or on Shabbat here. They were interested in communicating messages forever, you know, larger messages that would be eternally relevant, and they did that by telling stories of the struggles of the sages. But we were supposed to learn from them, not just, you know, what happened, but what the literary unit is trying to tell us. You know. Yes. And let's let's move on to mm. the next phase in our story of Alicia Benavuya. So just for the listeners, we recorded these three episodes, like each one is separated by a few months. Um, so we 
we're not even remembering exactly what we spoke about the first time, but I believe we touched <laughs> on, I believe we did touch on um, some of the... Um, we did the Yerushalmi, yes. uh, the Yerushalmi, Yerushalmi yeah. vantage point of this story. Right. But I think some of some of what you're about to present is also going to be. Well, I think it was probably touched on uh, in the first, correct? Yeah, so first we did the Tosefta, which remembers that companion volume to the Mishnah, where really the whole story of Elisha <clears throat> originates, and we had a whole unit on that, and then we did the Yerushalmi. So as we saw in the first unit or the first of these series, I'll, I'll very briefly refer to that, but. The Bobley story, what is the beginning of the Bobley story that we're going to look at right now, is really a interpretation of this Tosefta passage that is very, very cryptic. Um, so the Tosefta passage talks about four sages who went to the Pardes, some sort of mystical endeavor or speculation, and different things happened to all of them, but here right at the top, you can see the Tosefta says, Acher gazed and cut the shoots, or Alicia gazed and cut the shoots. What that means, again, we talked about in that episode. About him, scripture says, let not your mouth lead you into sin, and do not say before the angel or messenger, the malach, that it was an error, else God may be angered by your talk and destroy the work of your hands. That's all the Tosefta says, and this is very, very difficult to understand. And it was clear by the time of the Talmuds, both the Yerushalmi and the Babli, they no longer understood what this was talking about, and they did their best to interpret it through a story. So the first two sections of what's going to become a long story in the Bavli is an interpretation of this Tosefta. So just to run through this briefly, because again, you should refer to that episode where we did this in detail. Yes. The Bavli story starts in this section one. What did he see? What did Acher see? He saw Metatron, to whom was given permission one hour each day to sit and write the merits of Israel. So he somehow had a heavenly vision, or he went up to heaven. He saw this angel Metatron writing the merits of Israel. He said, it is taught on high, there is no standing and no sitting and no jealousy and no rivalry and no back and no weariness. So he had a tradition about what's going on in heaven, but it says there's no sitting. And here Metatron apparently was sitting because he says, perhaps heaven forbid there are two divine powers, right? Metatron had permission to sit and write the merits of Israel, of Israel uh, but he has a tradition that there's no sitting. No one else except God could sit. So maybe Metatron is a God. He says, perhaps there are two divine powers. So that's his sin. It was kind of kind of dualism, or we would call it heresy. Immediately, they brought out Metatron and struck him with 60 lashes of fire. So they punished Metatron to show Elisha he wasn't a god. They said to him, to Metatron, when you saw him, why did you not rise before him? That occurs in some manuscripts in the printed version, not all texts. But OK, they said to Metatron, you were kind of at fault. Now he was given permission to burn the merits of Acher. So since Acher caused Metatron to be punished as proof he wasn't a god, Metatron was given permission to burn out Acher's merits, midah keneged midah, measure for measure. A heavenly voice went out and said to him, return rebellious children except Acher. Okay? So this whole scenario you could see is very strange. 
But here the rabbis are trying to understand what the tosefta means. So how did Elisha's mouth let him lead him into sin? Because he said, oh, maybe there's no, perhaps there are two divine powers. His mouth said a sin. And don't say before the malach, it was an error. Who is the malach? The malach is Metatron. And destroying the work of your hands, another meaning of work of your hands is your merits, your skuyot. It's the good deeds you do. So the work of Elisha's merits were, were destroyed. Okay, we're going to see the interpretation flows into the next section. But you can already see this very convoluted and bizarre scenario is just an attempt to make sense of the Tosefta. Yeah. Question. Um, for the viewers, what's the time gap between the Tosefta and the Bavli? Well, the Tosefta is a little later than the Mishnah. So, you know, the Mishnah is about 200, 220 CE, edited by Rabbi Huda Nasi. The Tosefta maybe 50 years later, 30 years later. It's all Tanaitic. It's only got traditions from the same period, but maybe it was edited a little later. Now, the Bavli, we don't know. It could be a couple hundred years later, 300 years later. I mean, it was, it was edited or redacted in like 600, 650. You know, we don't know exactly. So story could have, could have developed over the course of a long time. Right. So, so your point of departure would be that they're not trying to necessarily um, give the answer towards what the Tosefta means, but rather giving, or but rather utilizing the Tosefta in order to open up um, certain, certain, um, certain ideas that they wanna, they wanna bring attention to within the context of the things that they're going through. Yeah, the, I mean- it, the, the problems it, that are, that are <laughs> existing in their times. Yeah, it's a good question. You're saying, what are they doing here? Well, they're doing two things. Yes, on the one hand, they're trying to make sense of the Tosefta because whatever it meant originally, they seem no longer to have access of, uh, but they are, as you say, all stories, Good stories are relevant to their their audience and the time in which they're told. Otherwise, they wouldn't be preserved. They, you know, nobody would care. So they're also trying then to make sense of something that would resonate with their time. And we'll see what that is in a minute. Okay. Is so the fact that the Yerushalmi has a different take as to what these mean for you enough proof to say that they're that they're trying to figure out the Tosefta versus? relating their tradition of how to understand that Tosefta? Well, the Yerushalmi, yeah, the Yerushalmi made sense of the Tosefta in a different way. Yeah. I mean, they had a totally different scenario and um, about what Acher did, about what this all means. And that tells me, yeah, the tradition of exactly what the Tosefta meant was lost. After all, it's cryptic. When you talk okay. about mystical things, you sometimes, you don't want to say it openly because you don't want just everybody to know. It's esoteric, it's secret. It's something uh -huh. that only the- It's, it's you know, bound worthy, Yeah. It's in translation then, gotcha. Yeah, it's something only the worthy should know, but then sometimes your tradition gets cut off and no one remembers what it meant. <laughs> that seems to have happened a little bit here. Okay. okay. All right, so let's do the second section and we'll just review. So that, that we'll talk about this whole thing in a minute. So. In the second section, he said, that is, Alicia said, since that man, meaning since I, this is Talmudic style, talk about yourself in the third person, since I have been banished from that world, the next world, I'll go and enjoy myself in this world. 
Why is he banished from the next world? Because his merits have been destroyed and he hasn't been, and, and he's no longer able to repent. So there's no way he can do good deeds and any sin he does is going to just be there for him after death. So he's basically been excluded from the world to come. Um, so he realizes that, okay, I've got no share in the world to come, so I might as well enjoy myself in this world. I think that's a very rational <laughs> point of view. If we knew we weren't trying to do good deeds and mitzvot and, and you know, be obedient to get to the next world, you know, why wouldn't we just go out and enjoy ourselves? Anyway, even if we wouldn't think that way, I think it's plausible that someone would, Acher would. So Acher went out to evil ways. The Hebrew is tarbut ra'ah. So he went out to evil growth. I'll come back to that in a minute, why it's important. And he found a certain prostitute. He's going to go have fun. He propositioned her. And she said to him, are you not Elisha ben Abuya, whose name went out throughout the world? You're a famous rabbi. What are you doing propositioning me? So he uprooted a radish on the Sabbath and gave it to her. So he violates Shabbat. And she said, it is another. It is Achir. It's not Elisha ben Abuya. So this is an ideology, a story of origin of his name. How did he get the name Achir? Here's how he got it. He, he, he showed the prostitute he wasn't a rabbi. He was some other man. And she said, ah, someone else. So he got the name Acher here. Now, it's, it's a very, again, a kind of very unusual scenario, a little bit. Um, uh, but again, it's going back to the Tosefta. So cut the shoots in the Tosefta, which is not clear what it means, um, is, is this uprooting of the radish. <laughs> You know, what does cut the shoot mean? He cut off a radish. So that's how he cut off uh, the radish. Um, and shoots too, which is some sort of growth, right? That's why he went out to evil ways, but it uses the word growth. So, uh, you know, there was some sort of evil growth that he was uh, he was involved in. Um, so this continues the efforts to explain parts of the Tosefta. Part of it was in this first section. He gazed, what did he see? Malach, Metatron, mouth led him into sin, God being angered, and cutting the shoots is kind of explained here with the word acher. So, you know, like we saw in the first session, I encourage everybody to go back. You know, we went through this kind of table where all the parts of um, the Tosefta and the verse that the Tosefta quotes are explained by the Bavli in this narrative scenario, okay? And, and that's how the, the Bavli generates this scenario, by explaining the Tosefta. Okay? So that, that's the beginning of the Bavli story. But what the Bavli has done through the story is, as you say, Bensi, you know, we're trying to address or make a story that's relevant to their own concerns. It has created the figure of a great sage. I mean, we'll see how great he is in a minute. The prostitute already says, you're such a great sage, your name is famous. So someone who obviously knows a great deal of Torah, but who is now precluded from the next world and therefore embarked on a life of sin, because why not? You know, you're not going to get to the next world. So this raises the question for the Bavli, are the merits of Torah study intrinsic, inviolable, or can you lose them? That is, the rabbis think Torah study, in the Bavli especially, is the greatest thing anybody can do. Tamut Torah, Kulam. 
greater than all the other mitzvot. They make exaggerated statements. The Torah was why God created the world. The Torah was the blueprint for creation. Okay, so if you've learned Torah, the rabbis want to know, could you ever learn that merit, first of all? And how could, could you ever sin? That is, once you know Torah, shouldn't that Torah protect you from sin? I mean, shouldn't that Torah have its own positive effects that you would never become a sinner? Um, and it, it's hard for them to envision a great rabbi actually sinning. Sure, he could do one sin or two sins or, you know, a few sins, but could he actually become Evil. a total sinner, right? A heinous sinner, someone who rejects it all, who throws away Judaism, having learned Torah. Now, <clears throat> what they do here is construct a plausible way this would kind of happen. How would it happen that a, a great Torah sage would become a sinner? Well, he made a little mistake. He said the wrong thing. And, you know, it was an innocent almost mistake. He got confused by his tradition. He said maybe there are two powers. Metatron was punished because of that. Then Metatron wiped out his suyot and he was his merits. He wasn't allowed to repent. So, you know, it was very unfortunate, but we have a plausible construction of a rabbi who no longer can be uh, uh, eligible for the world to come and therefore goes out to sin. Okay. And I want everybody, you know, to understand you could see his sins here are, you know, they're basically, we would say, Ben Adam Le Makom, right? These aren't stealing yes. and killing. I mean, violating Shabbat because he doesn't care about observing Shabbat anymore. And, you know, it's not even incest or adultery. It's, you know, consorting with a prostitute. I'm not saying it's good, right? But in terms of the scale of sin, it's not the worst thing in the world. If you remember the Urshalmi, he had much greater sins there. Yes. Yes, okay? Yeah. Bodley is, you know, it's because it's constructed him in this way, a sort of great Torah sage who somehow lost his share in the world to come and therefore you know, logically fi figured, I might as well enjoy myself here. Why am I saying, you know, he, he, he went out and became a sinner, but it wasn't even so bad. Okay, so that's how, now, now the rest of the story, in my opinion, is trying to answer this conundrum. Will, can Elisha Benabuya really lose his merit for Torah and descend into sin? Which is something the rabbis might be concerned about for themselves. Could we ever, you know, envision us experiencing this fate? Or is the Torah he learned ultimately going to prevail somehow, despite everything that happened? Because they believe Torah is just so great and, and, and has such positive effects. Okay, so that's what I think is their main question in the story. That's not what the Tosefta is about at all. But the rabbis aren't interested in what the Tosefta is about. They're interested in something else, the rabbis of the Bavli. So they're... They've done their work in interpreting the Tosefta, but as you say, they've done it in a way that is going to be relevant and important to them. Okay, so let's go on now to section three. Yeah. Beautiful, no, I, I just said beautiful, beautiful. Yeah. So in section three, we have three dialogues between Alicia and Rebbe Mayer, which is, or Acher and Rebbe Mayer, which is already kind of interesting because Rebbe Mayer has not given up on Alicia despite all this thing that's happened. So that that is another sort of sub-question in the in the in the in the in the story that is if you do have a sage who's sinning like Alicia Benabuya, should you even learn Torah from him? Or would you get corrupted? But at least here it seems that Mayor will learn Torah. But so let's see their dialogues. You can see 
another thing, I'm not sure we'll fully have time to explore this, but you can see section three, ABC. This, this story is a very, very beautiful literary structure. Um, section four there, five, and then I've labeled this uh, four prime, three prime, two prime, one prime. It has what we call a chiastic structure where the first part corresponds to the last part, the second part to the second to last, the third to the last, third to last. So it's it's actually a very, very polished and beautiful literary structure. And you have these internal units of three, as we'll see within it. Um, I don't know if we'll have total time to unpack all of this, but I, I wanted to mention, I hope you don't, hope it's okay. There are a couple really, I think, fine studies of this. One is a, a book by, you can see this, um, Alon Goshen Gottstein called The Sinner and the am am Amnesiac. Does that show up to you guys at all? Okay. Um, it, it's blurry, um, but um, you know what? We, we can add it to the description, right? Yeah. But... Okay. And the other is uh, my book, Talmudic Stories. I guess that's also blurry. Okay, I've blurred this background, but anyway. Um, so in both of these, you'll find much more detailed discussion of all of this. Also on my NYU website, I have uh, a long article on this very story if you're if you're interested. Anyway, let's look at these dialogues between Acher and Rebbe Meir. So after he went out to evil ways, Acher asked Rebbe Meir. So Rebbe Meir already knows Acher is sinning, violating Shabbat, consorting with prostitutes, but he's still hanging out with him. Why? Well, because as we'll see, Acher's Torah is still so precious. So he asked Rebbe Meir, what is written? The one no less than the other is God's doing. Okay, he quotes him a verse from Kohelet, from the Bible. And he says, what does this verse mean? And Meir answers, everything that God made, he made its counterpart. He made mountains, he made hills, he made seas, he made rivers. Okay, that's what the one no less than the other is God's doing. Now, Meir's answer, I think, is very ordinary. That is, it's a boring, straightforward understanding of this verse. Yeah, God made mountains and hills and, and, and seas and rivers. Okay, you know, great. So this shows Mayer's inferiority to Acher, because Acher's going to come back with a better explanation. He said to him, that is, Acher, Elisha, said to Mayer, Akiba, your master, did not say this. You know, there's a better explanation from your own master, you don't know it, or you didn't, you forgot it, I know it. Rather, he made righteous, he made wicked. He made the Garden of Eden, he made Gehenna. Each and every person has two portions, one in the Garden of Eden and one in Gehenna. The righteous man having earned merit takes his portion and the portion of his fellow in the Garden of Eden. The wicked man having been found guilty takes his portion and the portion of his fellow in Gehenna. Now, this is a very interesting, but also problematic interpretation. I mean, first of all, it's a, it's, 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 it's a better explanation than Mayer because it's so novel, it's so innovative. What does it mean? The one no less than the other is God's doing? He made righteous and wicked and Gehenna and Garden of Eden. And, you know, so this is a much better explanation. So this is why Rabbi Mayer is still trying to learn from Acher. Acher, even though he's a sinner, still has this great Torah. And Mayer still wants to learn it. Now, the very fact that it's a better explanation, there's, there's more to it than that. It's also 
I think, probably self-referential. That is, the 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 thing that Acher was accused of was basically a kind of dualism, two powers. Heaven forbid there are two divine powers. And usually two divine powers is the power of good and the power of evil. <laughs> you know, that's that's the classic dualism, which is, of course, a good explanation of why there's evil in the world. The Zoroastrians believe this. Lots of dualistic religions believe this. But here Acher is saying, God made righteous and the wicked. He made the Garden of Eden, he made Gehenna. He made the good things, he made the bad things. So Acher is basically saying, I don't accept dualism. And I think the narrators or the people who made the story, the storytellers are kind of hinting to us, Acher really wasn't a heretic. It, it was a, it was a, it was a, you know, inadvertent explanation that came out of his mouth. He didn't mean that he believed in two divine powers. He was like, why is Metatron sitting? And, you know, then he said it and all this. So it's basically meant to make him a little. Uh, so so that's why they emphasize the mouth part. <clears throat> that's why they emphasize that he sinned with his mouth as opposed to he sinned. Yeah, I mean, the, the fact that he sinned with his mouth is also related to Tosefta. Do not say before the angel that it was an error. Uh, uh, you know, as God, God may be angered by your talk. Oh, so, okay, 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 okay. Your mouth leads you into sin. You know, but but you're right. It, but it's hinting that it, that he that what he what what happened to him in that sad episode with Metatron was an error. It was what we would call shogeg, you know, or accident. It wasn't it wasn't part of a hardcore heresy. Okay, so there's a hint at that. Now. It's also, this is also a very, very problematic theology by Jewish and rabbinic standards. The righteous man having earned merit takes his portion and the portion of his fellow in the Garden of Eden. I mean, we never heard just about anywhere that I know of in rabbinic literature that something like this happens, that one person grabs someone else's merits and the wicked man gets punished for someone else's sin. Um, so, and, and if you look at some of the Goonim who comment on this story, they actually reject this. They say, this is wrong. You know, they can't accept this. This is, so, I, you know, I think what's going on is they're, I mean, I don't fully know what's going on, but I think they're trying to explain, well, this is unfair. And, and this is a little bit what happened to Acher. It's unfair. They're, again, kind of made it covertly sending us a message that it's really not right <clears throat> that something like this would happen to Acher, that a righteous man would lose his 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 portion, and that a um, that a wicked man, even if he does some some good deeds, would would get punished for someone else. Anyway, it's it's definitely raising this whole issue of you know rewards and punishments and so on. So, um, <clears throat> so I think this this needs a little more investigation. But anyway. Okay, we have a little, again, a parenthetic comment on the story. I'm just going to skip over, but basically a later rabbi kind of glosses this with a proof text, okay? Now, we we then get to a second discussion between Acher and Rebbe Meir. So now Acher, again, after he went out to evil ways, again, you can see the repetition. Acher asked Rebbe Meir, what is written? Gold or glass cannot match its value, nor vessels of fine gold be exchanged for it. Okay, again, a sort of, Interesting verse, and he's asking Rabbi Meir what this means. This is from the book of Job. Um, it there is probably wisdom, chokmah, but the rabbis probably under, understood this as Torah. So he said, Meir says, 
This refers to matter of Torah, which are difficult to acquire like vessels of gold and vessels of fine gold and easy to lose like vessels of glass. So this is actually you know, a better explanation of the verse than Mayer did the first time. It doesn't basically just repeat the verse. It actually adds something to it and kind of makes an analogy. Gold or glass, why are they compared to Torah? Because they're difficult to acquire. Torah is difficult to acquire and they're easy to lose, like vessels of glass can break. So he he, he introduces a kind of analogy. You know, it's, he tells you, in other words, more than what the verse just says. And Mayer's trying to up his game here. But it's still inferior to that of Acher. Acher again responds, by God, are they even like clay vessels? In other words, if you are comparing words of Torah to different kinds of vessels, gold, glass, you would also have to compare them to clay vessels, but clay vessels are worthless or cheap, you know, so we wouldn't want Torah compared to clay vessels. So I don't like your explanation because it leads you down a, you know, it leads you to a bad place. Okay, we can't, we can't accept this. And, and Akiba, your master, didn't say thus, right? It, this wasn't even the explanation of your own teacher that you didn't know, you didn't learn, you forgot, which I know. Rather, just as vessels of gold and vessels of glass, even if they are broken, can be restored, so a sage, even though he sins, can be restore, restored. Now, this is right, clearly self-referential to the question we're trying to figure out. Can a sage who sins do repentance always? Can his Torah prevail and he would be uh, forgiven? And Acher says, yeah, he could. <laughs> So Mayer says to him, then you two repent, okay? He's clear, you know, he clearly sees this is self-referential, referring to Acher himself. So you repent. But Acher says to him, no, for I've already heard from behind the curtain, the curtain up in heaven, return rebellious children except Acher. So I think this is particularly tragic because everybody else can repent, but because of this unfortunate incident with Metatron, Acher can't repent. And he tells that to Mayer. He says, you know, uh, you're right. You know, I can't. Now, Mayer probably didn't hear this. I mean, he obviously wasn't up there in that heavenly scenario. So Acher had heard that voice, but Mayer had never heard that voice. So, but now he's apprised of it. And, you know, we, the audience and Mayer learn again why he can't repent. And this is important because the simple the simple solution for the sage who does sin, if he ever sins, is to repent. Why not? Then you're then you're a sage again. You know, then you're back in the in the good then you're you know in good standing, and you you stand to to get to Alam Haba. But the story has to preclude repentance to preclude that easy answer. Exactly. To get to the difficult answer is what ultimately will happen. And will the merit of Torah save you despite not being able to repent? Okay, now we get to the third uh, story, third dialogue, and it starts a little differently. Our sages taught it once happened that Acher was riding this horse on the Sabbath, going on his way, and Rabbi Meir was walking after him to learn Torah from his mouth. So here I think it makes it explicit what we've been saying. Mayor's walking after him because he needs to learn Torah. So even though this sage is a sinner or a heretic, you know, a terrible, seems to be a terrible person. Although, as we've said, he wasn't stealing and killing, right? He was 
violating Shabbat or whatever. You know, Torah is so important the disciple still wants to learn. Now, this is going to be questioned later in the story, but for now, we are supposed to understand Torah is so precious, you've got to go out and get it, even from a problematic teacher, a sinning teacher, a heretical teacher. So here his teacher is in the in the in the um act of sinning. He's riding a horse on Shabbat, <laughs> which you're not allowed to do. And in some sources, this is actually associated with 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 rebellion that is the way you rebel against judaism or the rabbis is you ride a horse on shabbat technically riding a horse on shabbat is not the biggest violation of shabbat it's like a shvut or you know it's not even deraita whatever but but it, it's symbolic so he's he, he's symbolically riding a horse on shabbat but again we would say yeah he's riding a horse on shabbat because it's easier to ride than walk so if you're not concerned about violating the laws, because you're, you've been precluded from Alam Haba, of course you're gonna ride a horse on Shabbat. You know, just like anybody today who doesn't care about observing Shabbat is gonna drive instead of walk to Shul or, or wherever they're going, right? So right. we understand what he's doing. Rabbi Meir's trying to learn Torah. Now, Ather says to him, to Meir, Meir, turn back, Chazor, since I've already measured by the footsteps of my horse that the Sabbath boundary is here. You're not allowed to go 2,000 cubits outside of your place of rest on the Sabbath. So, so Mayer has been following Elisha Menabuya and I guess got so immersed on Torah, he didn't realize he was about to violate Shabbat by violating this law about not going too far. And, and, and Elisha has to remind him. So this, again, shows the greatness of Elisha Menabuya. He's been somehow monitoring the distance, counting by the footsteps of his horse, while engaged in these discussions of Torah with Rebbe Meir. And, um, you know, he's still cognizant of, of the mitzvot. And he wants, he wants Rebbe Meir not to violate it, which is also blurring the lines, I think, like you were mentioning earlier, is he really... Um, as as uh, evil as we make it, when he's actually consciously trying to make sure Mayor does not violate. Yeah, exactly, because he's not really rebelled against God, or you know, he's like we've seen in some of the other sources. He, he's just accepted his own fate. His yeah, own, he, he, own fate. He, yeah, he knows that he can't do it, but you know, he's still concerned for his Talmud, for his disciple, right? So it's it's part of the kind of tragic construction of Elisha ben Abuya. He's not evil. He's tragic, right? Yeah, but again, yeah. he's a figure to pose this question, you yes. know, the sitting sage question. Okay, so he tells Mayor, you know, you go back. And so he said to him, Mayor says to him, then you should repent, then you chazor. So again, there's a nice play on chazor, right? Chazor or chazar means both go back, go back and don't keep traveling, but it also means to repent. So you go back, and, and this is all very symbolic, the Sabbath boundary, you're going outside the community of Torah, you're breaking the boundaries, you know, you're leaving or you're staying inside. I mean, it's very, very, very symbolic scene. Yeah. But again, when Mayor says to Elisha, you chazor, you turn back from violating Shabbat and you repent, double entendre, you know, he says the same thing. No, I've already heard from behind the curtain, return rebellious children, except Akhir. I can't do it. Okay, so again, tragic. 
Okay, so we move on to section four. Now, in this, Mayer took hold of him, he took hold of Acher, and he brought him to the house of study. He said to a child, tell me your study verse. Now, what's going on here is the way the rabbi sometimes got a kind of prophecy or, you know, intimation of, of God's will in an age after the age of prophecy is to do this. You would ask a, a, a child, what, what verse do you happen to be studying now? And that verse was like a message for you, a kind of prophecy. We, or you could like open, I mean, we have other instances of this. You could open a book and to open a Tanakh and stick your finger in, and that verse would be relevant. Okay. Or okay. if you just were passing by, you know, the outside of a Beit Knesset or Beit Midrash, and you heard a verse from inside, that pasuk, that verse could be relevant to you. So these were mechanisms like the bot call or you know, ways of getting a kind of message. So Mayer hasn't given up on Alicia yet because he's heard Alicia tell him about this heavenly voice. You can't, you know, return, you can't repent, but he himself hasn't heard it. So I think Mayer is still fighting for his rabbi. He hasn't accepted it, even if Alicia has. So he goes to the Beit Midrash. He says to a child, tell me your study verse. And the child says, he said to him, there's no peace, said the Lord, for the wicked. So in other words, this confirms <laughs> that Elisha is wicked. What is the relevant verse to Elisha, Acher, and to his fate? There's no peace for the wicked. Okay? So this doesn't help Mayer, the opposite. It confirms exactly what Elisha said. God doesn't want any part of me or my repentance. Mayer doesn't give up. He brought him to another Beit Midrash. And he says to the child, what's your verse? The child said to him, uh, though you wash with natron and use much lye, kind of soaps, whatever, your guilt is ingrained before me, declares the Lord God. Another verse about Elisha being guilty. He brought him to another house of study. The child said to him, and you who are doomed to ruin. <laughs> so over and over and over again, we're getting, no, Elisha is indeed fated for perdition. He brought him to 13 houses of study. They recited for him in similar ways. Now, 13 is a stock number in the Bavli. It doesn't always mean 13. It means a lot. Took him to a lot of houses of study. In the 13th house of study, the child said, and to the wicked, God said, who are you to recite my laws and mouth the terms of my covenant, seeing that you spurn my discipline and brush my words aside? Now, the word wicked, to the wicked, is ule rasha. But that child stuttered, so it sounded as if he said, and to Alicia, God oh. said. And he said, Ule Alicia. <laughs> so this is like a, a very, first of all, this is a brilliant storytelling technique. I mean, can you see how absolutely brilliant this is? They find a verse that says, Ule Rasha, and it's like, it sounds like Alicia. It's kind of great wordplay right there. So it makes it black on white that, yeah. that God doesn't want Alicia and doesn't want his Torah. I mean, this is actually, I think, made it worse. Not only does Elisha not have a place in the world to come, but who are you to recite my laws and mouth the terms of my covenant? I, I don't want you even learning Torah. Okay, now, now we have something interesting here. Some say Acher took a knife and cut him up and sent him to 13 houses of study. And some say Acher said to him, if I had a knife with me, I would cut you up. <laughs> now, 
this notion of cutting up someone and sending them around, remember, this is in the end of the book of Shoftim where this yes. happens, to, right? So this yeah. is playing on that biblical story. But the Pilegesh Begiva story. Yeah, the Pilegesh Begiva story, exactly. But um, this is the one place where Acher is portrayed as a real sinner, like killing a child and, and sending him around. I think this is got into the Bavli by accident based on the Urshami. Because if you remember the Urshami, one of their explanations of what it meant that cut the shoots was kill young students of Torah. It was exactly this. Yes. And in that section of, of the Urshami, he did terrible things. He collaborated with the Romans. He killed young students. He sent them away from the Beit Midrash. Um, they made sense of the Urshami in a different way. So I think this is a kind of gloss that somehow got in based on the Urshami. And then you could see probably some people in the Bavli, some storytellers, you know, have him say, if I had a knife with me, I would have cut you up. So he didn't do anything. You know, he just kind of made a threat. That makes him, you know, a much more sympathetic figure. Um, but anyway, so I think this is, a, this is, this doesn't really go, the cutting up doesn't really go with the rest of the story. I think it, it doesn't belong here, but okay, whatever. All right. So then we, so this makes it absolutely clear to Mayer and the audience, if they didn't know before that Alicia is, is cannot repent and is considered a sinner because of what he did, because Metatron wiped out all his merits, you know. Okay, so now we get to the crux of the story. And, you know, if we get to the fact that there's a chiastic structure, this kind of, um, the central section is this section five. And again, often that is the point of this kind of structure where the different parts correspond. So, so we're reaching the apex based yes. on the chi. That's okay. what I'm saying. The we're climax. reaching the apex right now. Yes. Okay. okay. So... Um, where are we? Okay. So when Acher died, they said, we don't know who the they is, but I assume it's angels because he's dead, right? <laughs> let him not be punished and let him not enter the world to come. Let him not be punished since he studied Torah regularly. Let him not enter the world to come since he sinned. So I think this is like answer number one for our conundrum or our main question. What happens when you have a great scholar of Torah, who's then becomes a sinner, even though that shouldn't happen. And it's very hard to understand how it happens. But if it does happen, like in Alicia's case, what happens when he dies? Does he get rewarded? In purgatory. He's in purgatory. Yeah. Well, it's a kind of stalemate, I would say. Right. This is but a kind purgatory of purgatory would be to be in hell. Yeah. This is, this is saying not to send him to purgatory, but just not to send him to Olam Haba. Yeah. He definitely doesn't get Olam Haba, right? Yeah. But he doesn't get the opposite either. But he doesn't get anything. So it's kind of sad in a way. He just d disappears, right? Yeah. Yes. Yes. That's what I but Anyway, I think that's 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 a plausible answer. That's one answer the storyteller wants us to entertain. Well, it could be they kind of balance each other out. He doesn't go to Gehenna. He could have gone there. He he look at all the sins he did, even if it's just Shabbat and prostitutes and and so on. But 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 no, he wouldn't even get that because of the power of Torah. So it's already kind of chiddish, right? It's more than you might have expected. But then we have something else. Rabbi Meir said, when I die, I shall cause smoke to rise from his grave. When Rabbi Meir died, smoke rose up from Acher's grave. 
Now, it's a little difficult to understand what this means, but I think what Mayer is saying, what the storytellers are saying here is that, you know, this first answer was unsatisfactory. And it's better that he be punished and then be able to get to Ulam Haba. Yeah, so, that's right. So Mayer said, we don't know how this happens. Mayer dies and he goes to the angels. He goes to, you know, I don't know, the, whoever's responsible for so interesting. Yeah, right. So, so Mayer is suggesting that instead of letting it cancel itself out, he should feel the full force of both sides. Yeah, the you should pay for the sin so that you could enjoy Alam Haba. Right. Exactly. Both sides are, are yes, yes. Okay. Yeah, it's, it's not okay. canceling out, it's both, right? It's both. Yeah. We gotta we gotta accept the fact that he sinned, but he did learn Torah, right? So I want him to to first pay off his sins so that he could get to Alam Haba. You know, and like how Mayer did this, I don't know. But again, this is just storyteller. I think we're not supposed to take this literally. Again, this is kind of narrative theology. It's a way of leading us to theoretical and theological uh, ideas right now. Exactly. Like we're trying to play, yeah. with, play with, the, with the theological idea. Okay. Exactly. Now, Rabbi Yochanan said, is it a mighty deed to burn one's master with fire? One was among us, and yet we cannot save him? If I were to take him by the hand, who would tear him away from me? When I die, I will extinguish the smoke from his grave. So Rabbi Yochanan is not satisfied with this, and I think this is like answer number three by our understanding of how stories work. That is, it's 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 unfair, it, it seems bad that a Torah scholar should be punished for these sins. He, after all, he knew Torah. He was one of us. And we have to save him. When you say he knew Torah, isn't the point more that Rabbi Yochanan is saying that a person who learns Torah, something had, something had to be preserved within him through that learning? That he It, it could be. Yeah, it could be something like that. I, I mean, mean, at least that's how I'm understanding it. That they're saying that to you know maybe externally there's certain things that you see but you know internally there, there there might be more from from the sheer learning of torah that is able to to instill in a person yeah i mean i i don't know i mean you could put it that way or you could just say that the the merit for the torah should ultimately benefit him in some way um and and should never be destroyed even if he sins you know yeah you could you could do it in different ways i don't know exactly but he, but Rabbi Yochanan says, I'm going to extinguish the smoke. When Rabbi Yochanan died, the smoke ceased from the grave of Acher. He did it. We have a little parenthetic comment explaining this. The eulogizer, in other words, you know, the person who was praising Rabbi Yochanan after his death, said of him, even the guard of the gate, I think it's the gate of Gehenna, could not stand before you, our master. You were such a great sage. When you went to Alam Haba, you actually walked right into Gehenna, where his grave was smoking, and you took him out of there and got the smoke to be extinguished. So kind of your merit helped him out. So I think this is important, too, because both Mayer and Rabbi Yochanan are instrumental in ultimately saving Acher. I think that's what this means. He got him out of Gehenna. He got him to Alom Haba. So it's not just Torah in and of itself, 
that is going to get you the merit, but it's also the fact that you 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 the Torah that you taught, that you innovated, that you created was taught to other people, and mm -hmm. you're leading them carry on that Torah, and and that has a kind of living embodiment of Torah that ultimately saves you. So Elisha is saved by his Torah, but through his Talmudim too. His merits are now belonging to others. Because yeah, exactly. He's, he's, he's taught Torah, so his Torah has gone beyond him, right? And it's become part of Rebbe Meir, it's become part of Rebbe Elkanan, it's been part of others, and 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 that that merit can't be lost, is basically what the storytellers are saying. So here's, I think, answer number one, you know, their primary answer. Even if the sage does sin, however that would happen, even though it's hard to understand how a sage would sin, and then if he, if he did not repent, but even if it came to it, that a sage became a sinner, he lost his faith, you know, whatever, um, he would ultimately get rewarded for his Torah. That would that would prevail. That wins out in the end. That's how powerful Torah is. But this, and now in the next section, the story actually I think recapitulates this lesson for us. This is how stories work, especially in oral cultures. You know, you, they tell you the same thing in different ways to make sure you heard the lesson. So. The daughter of Acher came before Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, right? So we're going to the next generation. Acher's daughter, so his progeny, and Rabbi Yehuda Nasi, so Meir's student, spiritual progeny and physical progeny. So we're we're recapitulating the same characters in the next world, the next generation. She said to him, "My master support me." So she's poor. He said to her, my daughter, whose daughter are you? She said to him, the daughter of Acher. <laughs> so he said, is there still his seed in this world? He has no offspring or descendant among his people, no survivor where he once lived. This is talking about the wicked man in context. So Rabbi Yehuda Nasi can't believe that he would still have sons or daughters because wicked people aren't supposed to have survivors. And, and he obviously believes Akhir's wicked. So he's saying, yeah, your father was wicked. I, I can't even believe that he has surviving children. She said to him, my master, remember his Torah, do not remember his deeds. I think, again, this sums up the crux of the story. What are the rabbis saying? Torah prevails, not deeds. Torah should be, will be valued more than whatever sins the Torah scholar might commit. Fire came down from heaven and tried to burn Rabbi, Rabbi, Rabbi Yudinasi. In other words, almost tried to punish him for not being sympathetic to the daughter, for not supporting the daughter, and for calling Acher wicked. And then Rabbi Yudinasi wept and said, if this happens for those who dishonor Torah, how much the more so for those who respect her? You know, the, you get a protective celestial divine fire ultimately if you've learned Torah and then you know become a sinner, disrespected it. And so how much the more so with, with those of us who you know actually respect Torah who didn't ever sin, you know, how much should we be protected and favored and ultimately get merit? But you see how in this this recapitulates the whole story. Uh, daughter asks for support that is you know some sort of reward or 
charity. At first, she's denied it, like Acher was denied Olam Haba, but, but then she's given it by virtue of Torah. She says, remember his Torah. And here, you know, God has kind of been persuaded by this point. You know, God comes down and and warns Rabbi Yudanasi, you know, just like Rabbi Yochanan was, was able to put out this fire. So, you know, this is basically the same story, the same lesson with Mayer's student and Acher's daughter in the next generation. Um, Acher's Torah brings uh, charity, you know, support for his for his daughters. You know. um, what's interesting, too, is, um, you know, that you can see how this scene harkens back a little bit to scene three, uh, four. That's why I called it four prime. It's also in the Beit Midrash, probably. That's where Rabbi Yehuda Nasi is. Mm -hmm. And, um, um, you know, it's also a child. Remember in four, it was the Talmidim, male children of the house of study. Here it's a female child of, uh, of Acher, right? But we, we sort of have some of those elements, you know, coming back together. Uh, and in, in, in scene four, you know, God was over and over rejecting Acher, and Acher then brought death to the child. Either I would have killed you or I killed you. But here, God accepts the Torah of Acher. because brings life to the child. Yeah, and the Torah brings life to the child. So a, a reversal of that scene four, you know, because the rabbis are saying, ultimately, you know, based after this climax in scene five, Acher is is kind of, you know, redeemed. Okay, now the story doesn't end here, but the next sections sort of step outside the narrative frame. So I'm gonna come back to them. How did Rabbi Meir learn Torah from Acher? You see, that's kind of a question. And, mm -hmm. and then again, a drash, Rava expounded. The story actually continues here in the final section. So we'll do this first and then we'll go back. So in the final section, we have Rava Barav Shela came before Elijah. He went came before Eliyahu and Avi. Uh, and you know, certain rabbis do have visits by Elijah. Rava Barav Shela, so he's in the middle of the Amorite period. So we're skipping, you know, a few generations into the future. So he, for however, comes before, you know, Eliyahu and Avi, he said to him, what is the Holy One, blessed be he doing? So what is HaKadosh Baruch Hu doing? He said to him, he recites tradition from the mouths of all the rabbis, but he does not recite from the mouth of Rabbi Meir. <laughs> so as in many other stories and some sources, you know, even there's the Yeshiva Shalmala, and God is learning in the Yeshiva Shalmala, and he's reciting traditions, and he's quoting rabbis, but he's not quoting Rabbi Meir. So he said to him, why? The rabbi asked Elijah, and Elijah says, said to him, because he learned traditions from the mouth of Acher. So again, this is kind of recapitulating the whole question again. It, it, you know, is Elisha Menabuya because he sinned and therefore lost his share in the world to come, is, he, is his Torah somehow tainted? Is it corrupted? And therefore, did Rabbi Meir do the wrong thing by learning Torah from Acher? Now, it's sort of a question that we could ask, you know, again, based on, you know, section two or three here, where Rabbi Meir was, 
yep. you know, going after him, trying to learn Torah. So we're problematizing that a little bit here. And even though we got an answer in four and five, we we're, we want to actually reinforce this answer by raising the question again. Okay, or maybe a kind of ancillary question. Well, what about the disciple and what about learning from him? So even if Rabbi Elisha Menabuya is Torah ultimately prevails from him, you know, saves him, should the disciple learn from him? So it looks like no, because HaKadosh Baruch Hu is not reciting Rabbi Meir's traditions, which is a kind of death for Rabbi Meir. His Torah is not being passed on. He's not being quoted. So, so the rabbi says to Elijah, so what? Rabbi Meir found a pomegranate. He ate the inside and threw away the peel. You know, he says, so what? Rabbi Meir, he, like, a, like a, you know, like a fruit, a pomegranate, he took the Torah, the good stuff, and he discarded the heresy. If Elisha Benabuya was telling him anything wrong, he threw it away like the peel. So he knew how to keep, the valuable Torah, and he knew to stay clear of any kind of heresy. There are two powers in heaven, whatever it was that might have been problematic about a sinning saint. And now Elijah says again, he said to him, now God says, Mayor, my son says. So immediately God starts quoting Rabbi Mayor. Oh, you're right. You, you actually can learn Torah, at least in this way. And he quotes <laughs> Mayor in a Mishnah, it's actually very, very rare to have a Mishnah quoted within a rabbinic story, but it's interesting. We find it here. Psukim all the time, but Mishnahs, pretty unusual. Um, we could have a like challenge for our audience. Can you find others, other stories of this type? You know, there are a couple, but okay. So Mayor, my son says, when a human being suffers, this is from Mishnah Sanhedrin, the Shekhinah, what expression does it say? I'm light in my head, I'm light in my hand. If I'm sad and so on account of the blood of the wicked who are killed, how much so for the blood of the righteous that is spilled? This is a very problematic Mishnah. Again, it's not totally clear what it means uh, about the Shechina being light or pained. But basically the idea is that God has sympathy for human beings, even the wicked. You know, even when wicked people are killed, you know, we're all the Salam Elohim, so God has, you know, is, is pained about that. So, you know, here too, God would be pained about Elisha or Mayer not getting their share in the world to come. So ultimately, you know, Mayer is rehabilitated here, again, partially due to the thanks of this rabbi, Rabbi Barav Shela, intervening on his behalf. But, you know, because of this, we now learn that, yeah, you can learn Torah from a problematic sage, from a sinning sage. Why? Again, for the rabbis, Torah is that valuable. Otherwise, that Torah would be lost. And, we, you know, we had so precious. It's like gold in that analogy. It's like the vessels of gold and the vessels of glass. It is so precious. We have to hang on to every to all our Torah, no matter where we can get it. And if there was a rabbi who happened to be a, you know, a sage who would then sin, we still can learn Torah from him. So just like that Torah will ultimately bear merit to the sage, so the disciples should be able to access it, okay? Professor, Professor, what do you make of this, that the sages um, were so, um, that they give ultimate primacy to, to the Torah, um, even against sin, as in the story, even against, you know, uh, heresy and sin, Torah still, the, 
are, are always on top of there. What do you make of this? Why do you think the rabbis had this well the, uh, view? Well, you know, it's that's what that's the heart of rabbinic uh, theology. Talmud Torah connected kulam. You know, studying Torah is the most important thing for the rabbis. It's more important than prayer. It's more important than all the mitzvot. They see it as fundamental to literally to the structure of the universe without the study of torah the you know they say in other sources the the, the cosmos disintegrates you know there's no point to the whole thing so it's uh it's uh it's a universe maintaining um activity that some we call we sometimes apply talk about different religions that have these rituals that have to be done to keep the the universe going and the rabbis think that's what torah is they love it so much you know and they think it's so valuable um, so that, that's the heart of rabbinic Judaism. I mean, that, that's, uh, that's how they understand, you know, what, it, what God wants and, and what. I think, I think that it also shows how much they, um, dearly loved, uh, the Torah, meaning yes. their love for the Torah, for, for their activities around the Torah with Darshanut and, 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 and Halakha their love seeps through through this story because they're willing to entertain it against, you know, evil and heresy. And, <laughs> you know, yeah. for them, it's like you could see that, you know, they, it wasn't just something they, they did. It was something that they lived. Yeah. That they no. saw as life. A hundred percent. And here they're, they're exploring just, you know, how powerful it is yeah. and whether you can even lose it or its merits. All right, we'll wrap it up quickly because we're almost done. Just to show you again, you know, this nice structure. Remember in this scene, the last scene, you have Elijah. He's another supernatural figure. Remember in the first scene, we had Metatron. So we have a kind of angelic figure in both. In the first scene, Acher was rejected by God and God's servant Metatron. Metatron burnt out Elisha's merits. In the last scene, the Torah of Meir, who learned Torah from Acher is accepted by God, who quotes this Mishnah ultimately in his name, and by God's servant Elijah. So it's a kind of reversal of that first scene, a nice parallel, but taken to the next question. Not Acher's rejection, but the Torah of Acher's rejection, right? The Torah of Acher is not rejected anymore. It is accepted as being part of Mayer's Torah. Now, in the sections I just skipped, basically, they just asked that same question that we just answered in the narrative in section one. That is, could a disciple learn Torah from a heretical or tainted or sinning master? So here you could see in section three, it follows this section with the daughter and Rabbi Nasi that we read a minute ago. How did Rabbi Meir learn Torah from Acher? Did not Rabbi Barachana say that Rabbi Yochanan said, what is the meaning of for the lips of a priest guard knowledge and men seek rulings from his mouth, for he is a malach. Interesting, we had that a couple earlier. He is a malach of the Lord of hosts. If the master is similar to a malach of the Lord of hosts, then they should seek Torah from his mouth. And if not, do not seek Torah from his mouth. Only learn from a pious rabbi. Only, mm -hmm. only learn from a rabbi who's a messenger you know, of God, someone who's doing God's bidding. So you can see this is a this is what we call a kind of non-narrative comment or question. It's not a part of the story itself. It doesn't advance the plot. It's asking about the plot. How did Rabbi, how did Rabbi Meir up there learn Torah from Acher? 
And again, you know, it's a beautiful structure because this is three prime parallel to where Meir was learning Torah from Acher in the three dialogues between them. And we get three answers. Reish Lakish said, Rabbi Meir found a verse and expounded it. Incline your ear and listen to the words of the sages. Pay attention to my wisdom. It does not say to their wisdom, but to my wisdom. In other words, you could learn the Torah from them because you're really learning God's wisdom. You're not learning the sages' wisdom. Their Torah is okay. It doesn't get corrupted. Rabbi Kanina said, from here, take heed, daughter, and note, incline your ear, forget your people in your father's house. In other words, um, you can take heed and incline your ear to the good stuff, but forget your father's house, that is, forget the sin or any bad stuff. And, and then again, there's another little comment here we're not going to worry about. And when Rebbe, when Rob Dimi came up from Eretz Israel, he said, they say in the West, eat the date and throw the peel away. You know, take the Torah, the good stuff, and throw the bad stuff, the heresy, or something problematic that he's teaching you away. It's basically what Rav Abra Shaila said in the story. So what? Rabbi Meir found a pomegranate, he ate the inside and threw the peel away, right? Threw away the peel, same answer. So, Tommy is able to separate out the valuable Torah from any kind of heresy. He's not going to get corrupted, not going to get confused, and so on. And then we have another kind of tradition thrown in here, again, related to the same question. Rava expounded what is written? I went down to the nut grove to see the budding of the veil. Again, a kind of puzzling verse in the Song of Songs. Why are the words of Torah compared to a nut to tell you that just as a nut, even though it's dirtied with mud and filth, its inside is not soiled, so to a sage, even though he sins, his Torah is not soiled. Okay, so basically the same answer. There could be a sage who goes astray, but the Torah is going to be pure. It won't be tainted, it won't be corrupt, and therefore a disciple could learn it, as we see in the last section, Rabbi Meir learning Elisha's Torah is ultimately defended. Okay? So, you know, I think the Bible, the Bible is a sophisticated text. We know that. And it's it's not giving us easy answers. So it's concerned about certain issues about learning Torah from a from a a, a, a Rebbe you know, a master who's who's violating certain things or espousing certain heretical views. But ultimately, you know, I think it gives an answer that follows pretty logically from the answer to the first question, you know, does the Torah of the sinning sage ultimately save him and prevail and have enduring and inviolable merits? Yes, it did. It does. Well, then you, a, a Talmud should be able to access that Torah, learn that Torah, and just separate it from the from the heresy or the problematic ideas because that Torah is so valuable and we want him to learn it. And, uh, you know, in that way, the Torah is preserved and passed down. But but it's not easy, right? The Bible is not saying this is simple. It's, it's dialectical a little bit. It's going back and forth. It's raising problems with it. How could Mayer do this at first, in fact, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi rejects Acher's daughter in first. Elijah says that God is not quoting Rabbi Meir. So again, you know, it, it takes some work to get to this position. But I think ultimately the Bavli 
has given us a pretty clear answer of what the Bavli rabbis think by constructing yeah. this, this figure of Elisha Menabuya, like you asked at the beginning, to answer a question of concern to them. The ultimate power of Torah, the ultimate schut, you know, merits you would get for studying Torah, whatever else happens in the meantime. It's almost like they want to tread lightly on the subject, but they want to make sure that at the end you have no doubt as to what their position is. Yeah, that's that's quite they want they want you to know it's not simple and it's tricky, but ultimately this is where the 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 chips are gonna fall, you know. This is so fascinating. Now I'm gonna be honest, I do not remember it right now, um, because it's been a while since our previous podcast. I don't remember exactly the Yerushalmi's total vision. Mm -hmm. Are you able to just um, maybe just really quickly tell us just the overall picture of what the Yerushalmi was aimed at and how it different, it's different from this whole um, unpacking of the Bavli? Well, the Yerushalmi has a certain amount of overlap with the Bavli, but it's also a little different. First of all, in the Yerushalmi, remember, there were really two separate stories. There was one that was just trying to interpret the Tosefta, and that portrayed Alicia in very, very negative light, a sinner, a killer, um, and a collaborator with the Romans. And then a new story started, which was a little different. And that second story was more similar to the Bavli. It also tried to construct a figure of a, uh, of a sinning sage. The Yershami though didn't have the whole Metatron business. It went about constructing it differently and in multiple ways. His father had a bad intention. His mother inhaled idolatry. He had a spiritual crisis with the Tzadik Viralo, you know. So it, it, it also was working very hard. In a way, the Bobley's solution was much more elegant with Metatron to figure out how you could get someone to lose their skuyot, their merits, and therefore be stuck and not get a Lama Bach. But Yerushalmi got to that point too. Ultimately, there, you know, um, Elisha Ben Abuya rode his horse. It had that same horse riding scene, but it was outside the temple on Yom Kippur. So it was really an act of terrible rebellion. Uh -huh. And that's when the verse said, you know, you can't repent anymore. So it, it, it was, a, you can see the parallel in the Bavli, it moved that, the Bavli did it to the heavenly temple and to the Metatron episode, but it, it, the Yershami came to that same point. Now we have a sage who's a great master of Torah, and the Yershami too, Elisha Benabuya knows more Torah than Mayer. He remembered traditions that Mayer had lost, you know, the Akiban traditions. And ultimately when, when he dies, he is able to be uh, redeemed. At first, smoke comes on his grave, but ultimately it is extinguished. So the Yerushalmi comes really to the same answer as the Bavli, although it goes about it in different ways, and it doesn't really get into the whole thing about the Torah of Elisha and Rebbe Meir, you know, in, in quite the same way. Okay. This is absolutely fascinating and eye-opening and important mm -hmm. and, you know, um, I wonder, um, I wonder how many Agadot that you've gone through, because I, I'm sure you've gone, uh, probably all of them, um, how many times do you see Agadot as structured so neatly in a literary unit with, with chiasms? How often do you come across that? 
Yeah, I mean, you find it surprisingly often. I mean, the, a lot of the rabbinic stories have these very, very clear structures. They're not all chiastic. I mean, chiasms are, they're not uncommon. Uh, you find them, but you sometimes find more, you know, tripartite structure like we do in, in, in children's stories like Goldilocks, right? You know, too hot, too cold, just right. You know, often you have the kind, that's very common and that's common in folklore and that's like across the world. You know, that's, so you have three, you have sometimes seven part structures, you can have two part structures, but, you know, in, in nine out of 10 stories, I would say there is a deliberate structure. Some Sometimes you just can't figure out the structure and it looks like the story is, doesn't hang together well and who knows what happened. Um, but in, in most cases, you know, you, you should pay attention to the structure and, and try to see how the parts then relate to each other. Amazing. amazing amazing thank you so much this was really yeah. amazing and very enjoyable um, all right well thank you I for having wish... me and uh yeah yeah uh, i almost wish there was more uh to this story because i could keep i could do this for more <laughs> hours so yeah so i mean there's a lot more i didn't go into everything you know like i said you could look at alon goshen goldstein's book you could look at the chapter in my talmudic stories or in the article i have it on my website maybe we'll find a way to get this text or source sheet connected to the, the YouTube video so the audience can have it. Although I guess you could always access this on Safari too. So anyway. Yeah, that would be great. That would be great. And you also, you in the beginning, you mentioned that uh, the dissertation that you did on uh, the Sukkot, why Sukkot and that whole thing. Yeah, so that, that was published as a book called uh, The History of Sukkot in the Second Temple and Rabbinic Periods. Oh, so I did it. the dissertation that. was written into you know i revised it and published it and so is it in print i think it is in print still i think you can get it on amazon but uh if not they're used copies all over the place okay okay very good very good um okay great thank you so much um you are you mentioned to us uh off camera that you are working on another book so we hopefully will we, we would love to have you on for that new book god willing okay. Yeah, so that book is going to be called How How to Read a Talmudic Story. And uh, yeah, when that comes out, we will uh, we'll talk about it. Great. Because we never like to say goodbye in this podcast. <laughs> we, we expect the constant. Uh, thank you so much, Professor. We know your time is valuable. We appreciate it. And we hope that the audience uh, gains a lot from this three-part series that we've put out. And, you know, hopefully you will... It will it will resonate well. Uh, okay, and, and again, thank you for having me and thank you for all you do in, in disseminating Torah and, and making these videos and making it accessible, so. Thank you. Thank you, yes, sir. Right. thank you. Yeah. Hey guys, thanks so much for tuning into the Judaism Demystified podcast. We really appreciate all your support and your feedback. If you want to help us grow the podcast, keep spreading the word, share it with your friends, family, or whoever you think would be interested. We also opened a Patreon, so you can become a patron, contribute any small amount you'd like, which would really help us grow the show. Um, our Patreon is www.patreon.com Judaism. Pretty easy to remember. Thank you again, and we hope to keep putting out great shows for you guys.
before we go, we want to thank our Patreon supporters by name. Those are the supporters that are helping make this show happen because, frankly, Bensi and I are full-time workers who don't really have so much time on our hands because we have families, we have kids, and it's just a passion project that got way bigger than we expected. So we're dedicating more time to this, and obviously our production value up until this point hasn't been great, considering that we filmed this in Bensi's basement using a green screen and a crappy little microphone and not such great equipment to be honest i'm sure you all realize that so we are hoping to up our quality and get better equipment and part of that process is going to be due to you guys the listeners and supporters if you go to our patreon page patreon.com slash judaism you will see all the different tiers of ways you can help us out so first of all we want to thank our super patron jordan carmilli our platinum patron craig gordon our gold patrons, David Chaya Abramchayev, Laser Cohen, Travis Kruger, Vasily Volkov. Silver patrons, Ellen Fleischer, Daniel Maksumov, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal, and Jeffrey Wasserman. Thank you all for supporting the show, and we hope you guys enjoy. <laughs>